Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to have you with us this morning. My name is Ryan. I am the senior pastor here at Church of the Atonement. We are so excited to be gathering this morning. And uh, even though it is still virtual, we know that this is still a day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. I know that uh, through the music that's been prepared, the prayers, the scripture that the Lord has for us, we are going to be blessed by it. And uh, so I'm excited to have you joining us for worship this morning. If this is your first time, we would encourage you to let us know that this is your first time tuning in with us. You can leave us a, a message on Facebook, or you can contact us uh, by shooting us an email at info at uh, atonementlife.org. There's a great way of letting us know, hey, this is my first time. We'd love to be able to welcome you uh, to our, our virtual gatherings and look forward to a day when we can hold services here uh, once again and meet you face to face. But it'd be great to start a relationship. If there's any way we can be guiding you and learning more about our church or getting plugged into the various ministries that we have, please don't hesitate to reach out. Also, to our church family and friends who are watching this morning, I wanted to let you all know that though the service is live streamed, we are posting recordings of the sermons uh, to our website. And so you can share those throughout the week if you know someone uh, who might need a word of encouragement in these difficult times. We want to encourage you to use that as a ministry resource. Be, uh, feel free to share and think about uh, people who might uh, really need a, a word of encouragement from uh, the, the scriptures. And uh, feel free to share that on Facebook or in an email or however uh, it's best for you to share it on the various platforms that are available to us. As we begin our worship this morning, I would like to just open and ask the Lord's blessing upon this hour. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for the rich blessings that you give us, though it can be hard for us to see those things when our eyes are veiled by weakness in our faith, when our eyes and sight are veiled by the circumstances in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask for your help as we come to worship you. We ask for the Spirit's assistance, that our minds and hearts would be ready to sing your praises, that we would be reminded of the truth that is in your word, the truth that is preserved and kept safe for us. Father, we pray that in this moment you would help us to quiet our hearts and our anxieties and our worries so that we might come before you as one body, presenting our praise offerings to you and being fed and nourished by this word that you have given us, these holy scriptures. We thank you for the blessing of this gathering. and We ask you to abundantly bless us as we gather around your word. Help us to grow and flourish as your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, good morning. There in your homes, in your living rooms, or wherever it is this morning that you have gathered as the Lord's people, good morning. Hear now the call to worship from 1 Chronicles 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, 
Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that God has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. He is the Lord our God. Come, let us worship the Lord our God. Let's sing together the day of resurrection.
beyond measure and infinite grace. We greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, greatly rejoice with glorious praise, greatly rejoice in a lightning corruptible love beyond measure and infinite grace. Love beyond measure and infinite grace. Love beyond measure. Amen. Let's quiet our hearts now as we come before God Almighty, God who is perfect, God who is pure, God who is holy. We come to confess our sins. Would you pray with me? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. God, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you, O God, have set in place, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? We were created as the crown of all creation, made to reflect glory, radiant, brilliant, shining glory, the glory of our God, our creator, our father. We were designed for flourishing, for pure, productive living. We were fashioned with souls, hearts, minds to commune and have sweet and unhindered fellowship with almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God. We came to life by the very breath of God, made to live according to every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. We have failed. We have failed, failed in the Garden of Eden, we failed this week, we failed this very morning. We have loved idols, empty things, and we have become empty. We have neglected the lover of our souls and our perfect good. Father and our God, we have ignored you. Forgive us, O oh God. Forgive us this day, we, we plead and pray. We come to you, O oh God, through Jesus Christ, who lived the life we cannot, who laid down his life through suffering and death as the payment for our lawlessness and our guilt. We come to you today through our Savior, and we say thank you. Thank you for your merciful, loving, gracious, plan of rescue. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Teach us to walk in the light, in the way, in the truth, in the life of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. This we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. God is truth and God cannot lie. And he gives us assurance that our sin, our sins are forgiven in Christ. Hear the assurance of pardon. Three, three passages. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, we come now in our time of worship to where we give. And we do, as the, the, the pastors here, we want to say thank you for how you have given. We thank God that he's continued to provide for his work here at Church of the Atonement. And so now we also invite you to take time to continue to sow into God's kingdom for his work and for his glory. And let us meditate and worship as our worship team leads us in, O Savior, precious Savior.
Thank you, worship team. It is now time for our children's sermon, and uh, I need to grab something once again from over here, so if you just, just uh, bear with me for a second. What I have here is a box. Um, I don't know if uh, many of you have a rock collection, but when I was your age, I had a rock collection, and I still have most of my collection here. Now, I, can't, I say most of my collection because, as I've discovered, um, there is a name on my rock collection box. I don't know if you can see that. It's upside down, but it says Matthew Mowen. And for those of you who uh, don't know, my name is Ryan Mowen. So this is not my name. Uh, this is a name of my brother. My brother is about uh, 11 years younger than I am. And when I went off to college and started living as an adult, my rock collection was still at my parents' house. And somehow it ended up in this box with his name on it. So here's, here's a free children's sermon. Just because you write your name on something doesn't mean it belongs to you, kids. So don't think you can just take what belongs to your brothers or sisters by writing your name on it. Don't get any ideas. Um, my brother uh, and his wife celebrated a wonderful day yesterday. They got married and was able to witness that very, very small gathering and see uh, those two um, vow to be married to one another and make their pledges uh, before very close family and uh, the Lord. And that was a blessing to see. Um, look forward to a time where they can celebrate with all their friends and extended family that wonderful and good news. But um, in the meantime, we have a children's sermon that I need to stay focused on. And so what I have in here is my rock collection. And in this rock collection, there's all kinds of rocks that I think are really precious. Now, some of them are just ordinary rocks, you know, like, like this rock. There's nothing really precious about this, and, and frankly, I don't really know why it's in here anymore, because uh, it's just a normal rock, but it must have been a rock that I got from somewhere. I should have labeled it a little bit better. Some of these have stories, like, like this. This is just uh, normal dirt, um, but this dirt came from a very special place, and so it actually looks really special. I don't know if it, you can see it. Uh, very well on the camera, uh, but this is actually dirt from Petra over in the country of Jordan whenever I was visiting over there. So I filled this container with this dirt and I can open it up and look inside and it has a beautiful red color to the sand. Um, but again, it's not very valuable. It's not very precious. Just a memory that I have. But then I have some things that look much more beautiful. So this is the inside of a geode that has a lot of crystals on it. Uh, here's a, a quartz crystal that is really beautiful and shiny, almost kind of looks like a, a diamond in some ways. I have uh, fossils in here that I found, but the rock that I had the most pride in for many, many years was this one. Now, some of you might know what this is. If you're thinking it's gold, you're wrong. I, for a long time, thought that this was some type of gold when I got this. It's actually a rock called pyrite. It's sometimes referred to as fool's gold. And it is a, a rock that has a lot of shine and shimmer to it, and it, it looks just like so much of the things that are gold that we see today. But there's a very easy way to tell that this is not gold. And one of the ways is to put it in a really, really hot fire. 
If you put this rock in a really, really hot fire, you will learn very quickly that this is not gold. You know, it can be very hard to tell if somebody is really someone who loves Jesus, right? There can be a lot of people who go to church. There can be a lot of people who say that they love Jesus and want to follow Jesus and, and say that they really believe in Jesus. But the Bible gives us a couple ways of being able to tell whether someone is telling the truth or not, whether they really love Jesus as they say they do. And sometimes you'll hear the Bible talk about a tree and fruit, a tree that is healthy, that really is, is doing well, produces fruit, but a tree that is not good doesn't produce fruit. In the same way, people who follow Jesus will live a life that shows they follow Jesus. They will show that they love Jesus. They'll want to listen to Jesus' rules and commandments. But another way that the Bible tells us, and this is something we're going to hear about in our big lesson today, is that it's kind of like something like gold when it is tested with fire. That sometimes you can tell whether somebody is a follower of Jesus when they go through times that are really scary or really sad or really hard. And that even in those really scary and sad and hard times, something beautiful can be found out in them. Something beautiful can be revealed. You know, you throw this in the fire and you're not going to find a whole lot beautiful remaining. But if you throw real gold in the fire, it will come out of the fire after it cools as real gold. Pure gold and it will be just as precious as it was before it went in. Maybe even more precious with some impurities and things removed. And so what God's Word is teaching us is that our faith sometimes is tested and shown to be real, true faith. Sometimes we can know that we really do love Jesus, and really do trust Jesus, because in the midst of times that are scary or bad or really, really hard, He shows to us through that trial that we really do love Him. And that's what we're going to be learning about today. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for how much you love us. We thank you for the lessons that you give us, how you use things that we can think about, ideas that we can think about to uh, understand your truth. We thank you for this idea of gold being tested in fire and how it helps us understand that our faith sometimes is tested in the midst of hard times in the midst of things that are scary, in the midst of things that are sad, but that you can use even those scary and sad things to reveal something precious and beautiful. Help us to learn that more today as we continue to study your word. And we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word. Open our minds and hearts to hear your words spoken to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in the third week of our series that we're going through uh, in the first 12 verses of Peter's letter to these churches that are uh, making up the provinces of what is now part of modern-day Turkey. And as we'll see today, um, believers that Peter is writing to are experiencing some very difficult situations. And Peter takes this opportunity 
to write this letter because he wants to encourage them. He wants them to be strengthened and encouraged to remain faithful and so that they could flourish as God's people, even in the midst of their circumstances. And so in the very first week of our series, we focused on Peter's uh, greeting to them, and we looked at how Peter addresses who they are. And he addressed them using two words, elect exiles. These are two words rooted in the Old Testament identity of God's people, that they were chosen people, but they were exiles. They were awaiting a promised fulfillment. They were awaiting a better home. And they were uh, in, in a time of suffering and hardship that was going to give way to a time of glory and rest. That was true of God's people in the Old Testament. And now what Peter was doing is he's talking to these believers in what is uh, now modern-day Turkey, the believers of that region. He's basically saying, you all are included in that number of God's people. You too, Gentiles who are now part of God's people, are elect exiles. They've been chosen by God, and yet they are not at home. They are awaiting the time when they will finally be home. Last week, we then looked at Peter's introduction, and Peter begins elaborating on who they are by focusing on what God has done for them, how God has been at work in their lives, that God has acted out of great mercy. We sang about it in one of our songs this morning, God has acted out of great mercy and caused them to be born again to a living hope. That God has given them an inheritance that will not be touched by the brokenness of the world. That God not only guards that inheritance and keeps it safe for them in heaven, but also God's power is at work guarding them through faith. Peter is addressing who they are. They are cherished children with a living hope. And so this week, Peter continues in his greeting, encouraging these believers by acknowledging the context in which they find themselves, this context of life where they are enjoying this good news and yet experiencing hardship. Now, before um, we get into our passage this morning, I want to introduce three words to help us navigate what Peter is explaining to them. I think these words are helpful. Now, I'm not making these words a sentence. They may actually sound like a sentence. If you want to make them a sentence, that's between you and the Lord. These are just three words that I'm using to kind of give us handles to grasp God's Word as we try to understand what the Lord is teaching us to help us uh, have these things stick. I want to have a little moment of honesty. I don't typically appreciate alliteration in sermons. So when a pastor uses words that all start with the letter R, like I'm about to do, typically I'm not very impressed with that. I had a campus pastor in college who taught, every week taught 300 student leaders at our uh, college campus, and every lesson had alliteration in it. <laughs> every lesson would have the three R's or the four E's or something like that, and it got to the point where we all began to hate alliteration, and some of us going into the ministry swore we would never use it in a sermon. Well, we've broken that promise. Uh, we use it and because the fact is alliteration is very helpful. It can really help things stick. And so I say that to say, please don't think as I give you these words that this is an attempt of me trying to just be clever. I'm using these uh, words so that we can refer back whenever we need to speak a word of hope or encouragement to one another. We can refer back to passages like these and remember hopefully these three words so that we can explain this truth to uh, those who are in need of encouragement, as we are today. And so, here are the three words. 
Are you ready for them? The three words are reality, revealing, and reassurance. Reality, revealing, reassurance. I think each of these words is going to be very helpful as we navigate Peter's message written to these believers. So let's go ahead and begin reading from Peter's letter, beginning in verse 6. We're going to read through uh, verse 9. Listen now to God's Word written to us by the Apostle Peter. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Well, the first word that I uh, am posing for us to use this morning as a handle to understand God's word is reality. Peter continues the introduction of his letter by acknowledging the reality that these believers are experiencing. And he does this, I want us to notice, he does this in the most nuanced and pastoral way. He absolutely uh, gives full credit to the feelings that they're feeling, the circumstances that they're in, but he tethers their reality to God's perspective in the way that he presents it to them and to us. And so let's see how he depicts the reality that they face. The first thing that we see is that they are rejoicing. He writes, in this you rejoice. And it's important that we remember what he's referring to here. It's the passage that he, we studied last week, verses 3 through 5, of all the things, all the benefits that God is doing on their behalf. They are rejoicing in the fact that God is at work, that God has acted out of mercy to regenerate them, to give them new life, that God has preserved an inheritance for them, that is untouched by brokenness, that God is not only keeping the inheritance for them, but keeping them for the inheritance. That good news is the hope that fills the hearts of believers and causes us to rejoice. And so Peter acknowledges that reality. They have received this good news and they rejoice. It's why we gather weekly and in our public gatherings and also in our homes, in our private times of worship and rejoice and celebrate what God has promised to us and what God has done for us, how he has acted towards us, even though we didn't deserve it. And so Peter is acknowledging this reality. They are rejoicing in this good news, but he broadens the picture of life by saying that they have been grieved by trials. So here Peter presents the first mention of the hardships and suffering that they're experiencing in his letter. And it's at this point that he also introduces this strange paradox that many believers have experienced in the Christian life, one that's very difficult for us to explain, how believers can have hearts filled with rejoicing and at the very same time be grieved by trial, to be filled with sorrow even while we have reason to rejoice. This is an important statement that Peter makes here. 
And it's really important because he nuances this truth, this reality, this paradox of believers being ones who have reason to rejoice but are grieved by the trials. He, he nuances this truth with kind of four nuances about these trials. So what are they? Well, the first thing that he says is that these are for a little while. They are for a little while. He is emphasizing the temporal nature or the temporary nature, the, the fleetingness of these trials. This is a witness, I think, to the unity of the teaching of the apostles because Paul, in his letters to the Corinthian church and to the Romans, uses very similar language to describe these circumstances that we find ourselves in in this life. That this is just something that is passing. This is something that is momentary. Paul writes in Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. It's that, that idea of the sufferings being a time of transition, that, that this is not something that it will last forever. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul writes, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's the same message that Peter is delivering to these believers, that this experience of grief and suffering and trial that they have is for a little while. It's temporary. But he continues the nuance, uh, to nuance the trial and hardship that they experience by saying that the trials are various. Believers are united in undergoing trial and hardship, but we are not uniform in our experiences of hardship. We don't all experience hardship in the same way. We do not experience the same things. Our lives are very unique in, in the course and path that God would have us on. But we all will experience trial and hardship. And so if you keep reading through Peter's letter, he highlights some of the ways that hardship and, and trial came to fruition in the lives of these believers. They were falsely accused. They were targeted for their faith as evildoers. They were uh, experiencing the trials of being a free person who was living under the rule of a king or a governor, an emperor who is an unbeliever. The trials of working for an unbeliever if they were slaves. The trials of being in a marriage with an unbeliever. The trials of being threatened and mocked and slandered and reviled. These are some of the things that Peter references later in his letter and he's summarizing those things even now. Not every one of the believers experienced each of those things, but they have all begun to experience the trial and hardship of life. There is not just one kind of suffering. I love what John Piper says about this passage. He says, God paints with many colors, many dark and many bright, and in the end, the canvas of life will be glorious if you entrust your soul to a faithful creator. The idea of the various trials that we will experience are working uh, in our lives for various reasons. The uh, next nuance that the Apostle Peter gives is that these trials cause believers to be grieved. In other words, when the hardship comes, grief comes. What Peter is emphasizing here is that the pain that they feel, the suffering and trial and the hardship is real. That our hope that we have that causes all this rejoicing doesn't numb us to the pain of the hardship that we face. In other words, Christians are not immune to the weight of suffering and the pain of suffering. 
but the pain does not extinguish the hope that we have. The fourth nuance that he offers here is that they are necessary. He uses the word, if necessary. Who determines if these trials are necessary? That's the question that pops into our mind. Peter will make it clear later in his letter that God is the one who determines what trials are necessary in the life of believers, in the lives of believers. In chapter 3, verse 17, Peter writes, for it is better, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Likewise, in uh, chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Even in this uh, passage, when he says, if necessary, Peter is he's, uh, intimating that trials are not outside of God's sovereignty that they're not outside of God's control. That is a very important nuance for us to understand and for these believers to understand. Because here they are, they're believers, they're longing and hoping and rejoicing in this blessed promise, and yet hardships come in. And so Peter knows it's important that they have a right perspective, a godly perspective on the situation, the reality that they find themselves. And so these four nuances that Peter presents these four nuances of trials being various, being for a little while, being, bringing true grief, and yet also being necessary. These nuances help to tether the believers to see reality from God's perspective. And that is so important because we might be tempted to think that the hardships are coming because God is not in control. If you were to talk to 10 people in a room, and ask them, why do you think it might be difficult for people to believe in God? Someone in that room is probably going to answer with this objection. Well, if God is really sovereign like he says he is, and if God really loves his people like he says he does, then why do these things still happen? Why does he allow hardship to come into our lives? Peter is anticipating that exact question in the hearts of all believers. It's like he knows what we're all thinking. And he supplies an answer to it. And we see it come in the very next verse as he begins revealing how God can use even various trials for our good. And so he begins that the experience of these trials is so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold. Here Peter gives an explanation by way of analogy. Gold is a very precious metal. Even though we don't get to use gold as our regular currency. We don't shop with our gold and anything like that. We do use dollars, which are based on a gold standard. But if you were to go and try to buy gold, you might be shocked at how little you could afford. Uh, I just looked up the price of gold last night per ounce. It is over $1,700 for just an ounce of gold. 
$1,700 for just an ounce of gold. So how many ounces might you be able to afford or percentages of an ounce? I don't know sometimes that we really understand the value of gold even today. We might not think, why would gold have such a value? But it really does. And Peter uses this as an analogy to teach about the value of genuine faith. Now, there's a difference between refining and testing with gold. We often hear about gold referenced in Scripture as the process of refining. We, we hear, say, you know, gold, it's, it's this beautiful thing, but it's filled with impurities, and so you put it in fire, and the impurities separate from the elements, uh, and so you're able to take the impurities out, and you're left with a more precious gold. And that's certainly true um, of of how gold is refined, and it's certainly true of how God can use hardships in our life. And so some people will look at this passage and say, that's what Peter is trying to emphasize, that like uh, gold is refined through fire and, and the impurities are taken out, that that's what Peter is trying to express here. But I don't think that's what Peter is trying to explain here. I think it's true that the sanctification process, that trials do reveal the impurities that remain in our faith. That when we go through hardships, we have uh, moments in our life where we realize we're more sinful than we thought, but we're more loved than we could ever know. There's moments where we, we see idols that were in our life. There's moments where we see there are things that remain in our faith that make our faith weak. And so hardship has a way of revealing that to us. But what Peter is focusing on is not the refining aspect of of gold metallurgy, but rather he's focusing on the testing of it, testing the purity of it. How valuable is the gold? How do you know whether it's real gold and not fool's gold? How do you know it's not something that just looks like gold? Well, the gold is tested. When what appears to be gold is melted down, it will reveal how precious it truly is. You'll see how how uh, pure the gold is. And so Peter's point is that our faith, when we are in the midst of trial and suffering, it reveals how pure it is, how true and genuine it is. This testing will reveal impurities, but God does uh, allow these trials so that it reveals the precious and pure faith that is present in us, a faith that is revealed so that get my slides going here, so that it will result in praise and glory and honor when Christ comes. The reason that our faith is tested is so that God would be glorified. We're helped again by the rest of Peter's letter. Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The glory and praise that comes from our faith being tested and proven to be genuine in hardship may even come from people who were unbelievers. It's a witness to unbelievers. Peter writes, they will see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation, either the day when Christ returns or the day when the Holy Spirit begins a work in them. You see, the genuine tested faith, it reveals something 
to unbelievers. It reveals to unbelievers that there's something that is sustaining believers that transcends the circumstances of life. Think about this. When unbelievers look upon the life of a Christian and they see them lose the earthly comforts and the things that bring them joy in this world and yet still in their hearts, even though they are being broken up with sorrows, they still have reason to praise God and rejoice. When they see that and witness that, when they see that you are crushed but your faith is not extinguished, they see that there is something else at work. There is something that is sustaining you. There is a genuineness to your faith. Again, the Apostle Paul has some very similar words in uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, he says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The hardships, as they prove the genuineness of our faith, they prove that God's power is at work. Paul continues, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. When our faith is tested by trial and proven genuine, it is a precious thing that works for a witness, works as a witness to the world. Unbelievers can see it, and they will bring and give glory to God on the day of visitation. But it's not just a precious thing that God is revealing to them that our faith is genuine to them. It's also precious that he reveals our faith to us. If you stop and think about it, God already knows who has genuine faith. God already knows as he looks on all the people who profess that they love Christ. He already knows who is genuine and who is not. But do we know? How do we know that we love God? Our faith is proven to be genuine to us when in the midst of trial we can see that we still love God. It is a precious thing, a sign that we can depend on. It is a gift that reveals the faith is genuine to us. A sign that our hope is indeed living because God's power is guarding us by faith. Peter continues as we close our our passage this morning by looking at this great reassurance and reminding them that though they have not seen him, they love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. These are the verses that I read on Easter. Peter has twice referenced in his introduction a day when believers will see Christ face to face. And he makes it clear that they have not seen him and they do not see him now, but they still love him and believe in him. What Peter do, is doing is reassuring them that even in the midst of their sorrow, even in the midst of their grieving, they do love Jesus. They trust Jesus. And this is something that's counterintuitive it's because it's, it's not natural. It's not natural that believers would feel this way. This is a sign that God is at work, that the Holy Spirit has caused them to be reborn again, that they feel this way, that though their grief may have them questioning why they are experiencing the trials and hardships they are experiencing, they still love Jesus. They still believe in Jesus. 
Here again, I find it such a blessing to remember who it is that is writing this letter to them. This is Peter who saw Jesus. He saw him teaching. He saw him healing. He saw him, as Peter points out in chapter 5 of this letter, suffering. Peter was a witness to Christ's sufferings. And Peter also saw Jesus risen. And I can't help but think of the day on the beach after Jesus' resurrection, the beach in Galilee. When Peter was there with Jesus, and Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Remember, this is Peter who, as Jesus was experiencing his trial, being sentenced to death on the cross, Peter was enduring his own trial, proving to himself that he was in fact weak, denying any knowledge or association with Jesus. And it was later on this shore on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus is questioning Peter's love. Did Jesus need Peter's commitment on that beach? Did Jesus not know where Peter's heart was? He knew exactly where Peter's heart was. Long before that moment, he knew that Peter would deny him. He knew that Peter would also one day be the one to carry the message of the gospel through many hardships and trials. And he even prepares Peter for that in this uh, meeting on the beach. Jesus didn't need to know Peter's heart, but Peter did. Asking him three times, do you love me, was a way that Peter's heart was revealed. Peter's faith and love for the Lord was revealed to him. And that's the same Peter who has seen Jesus face to face, and yet he comforts these believers and us, reassuring that even though we've never laid eyes on Christ, we do know him, and we love him. We believe in him. This paradox in the Christian life of having a reason for hope and, and joy in our life and rejoicing with joy that's inexpressible and yet being grieved by trials, it's really important for us to probably mark this passage in our Bible and carry it with us through seasons of life. I think recently one of the most public and, and vivid displays of what this passage is describing uh, has been displayed in the life of Andrew Brunson. And I know that many here in the Church of the Atonement uh, consider Andrew to be dear family and a brother in Christ. I got to know of Andrew and the hardships and his ministry by being a pastor in the EPC, which Andrew is affiliated with at this time. And so as I learned about his imprisonment of uh, 735 days, as we joined in all the efforts along with this church, praying for Andrew to be delivered from his circumstances, I had the privilege, like you had, of rejoicing when he finally came home. And he was at General Assembly, and he got to share a little bit of his experience. And you may have read about some of that experience in his book, God's Hostage. I was uh, looking through this book to see if what he shared at General Assembly would be echoed in this, uh, in this text. And I was really impacted by just the raw feelings that he shared, both in this book and at General Assembly. I found it refreshing, actually, that he could be honest about how he was so grieved, how he was really wrestling with doubt. And I want to share a little bit of that. This comes from page 99. He says, I was at the bottom of a pit, 
Suddenly the words came up from the deepest and the darkest and most angry parts of me. You've betrayed me. You've turned me over. Why? How could you do this to a son who loves you, a son who has obeyed you? Do you even care? Or have you handed me over and walked away? Did you deceive me? Did you lie to me? Andrew talks about being in a place where he felt no sense of comfort in prison. And finally, comfort comes to him. This is on page 195. The comfort comes. He says, where are you, God? Why have you let them return me to this awful place? Why have you not intervened for me? Why are you so far away and so silent? I opened my mouth, weeping aloud, and the words I heard murmured stunned me. I love you, Jesus. And again, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Immediately I realized, here is my victory. In my lowest point, the cry of my heart was one of love to Jesus. I was elated. This was triumph in my heart, a response to God that showed me how different things were for me now. That was Andrew's trial. Not all of us will experience hardship or testing like his. You might not be familiar with his story. I encourage you to look it up. But Andrew was imprisoned in what is now modern-day Turkey, the very same region that Peter was writing to in this letter. That was his trial. But we all undergo testing and trial and hardship. I can't begin to know the trials that you've experienced in your life, and I can't pretend to know the ways that you have wrestled with feelings of rejoicing in your living hope while being crushed with sorrows. Maybe you have the same questions that Andrew did. Maybe you can find his experience relatable. How could God do this to his children? We find comfort in knowing that none of God's children are exempt from the brokenness of this world, not even his perfect son, Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews writes, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Scriptures record that Jesus endured suffering upon suffering. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured that for us, acting on behalf of of God's mercy so that we might be born again to a living hope and filled with love for him. And so Peter brings comfort and encouragement to people who are reaching their breaking point. They're feeling the strong pangs of grief and sorrow from a various, uh, various different trials. And Peter comforts them by acknowledging their reality, but he nuances it, tethering it to God's perspective. He reveals to them how God uses hardship even for our good, how hardship actually proves the genuineness of our faith, how that can be used as a witness to unbelievers, and it can even be used as an encouragement and an assurance that we look to in ourselves. And he also reassures them of the precious truth that though they've never laid eyes on Christ, they love him. So in whatever trials you have faced or may face, know that God has a purpose in using them to reveal something precious. 
To many of us who profess faith, these trials prove that God is at work in us, evidenced by our love for Jesus. But they also may show us how we need to grow in our love, that our love for this world may be slightly out of balance compared to our love of Christ. I love the story of Andrew's release. I love how it is such a powerful illustration. I remember when Andrew shared of his feelings and his emotions and experiences at General Assembly. I was in a breakout room with pastors, and I was just struck with the reality that that is such a gift that he had to know he loves Jesus. When every earthly comfort was being stripped away, he still had love for Jesus. It's good news for us to be reminded of that our faith can be used, even these momentary afflictions, to reveal God's glory, how God is at work, how we can still be filled with joy that is inexpressible, even though we are surrounded by trials and hardships of various types. May that be true in our lives as we continue to pursue God's call to live as his cherished children, elect exiles. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for preserving this word for us, a word written to believers nearly 2,000 years ago that seems as if it is speaking to us even in this very moment. Father, we pray that you would give our hearts understanding <clears throat> as we reflect on, <clears throat> excuse me, as we reflect on the ways that you use trials according to your will and wisdom. Lord, that they are not meaningless, that you have used them to bring a wonderful blessing into our life, to reveal the genuineness of our faith. Lord, teach us to accept the trials and suffering and to rejoice like the apostles did in Acts chapter 5, counting ourselves to be worthy because you have called us to be your children through what Christ has done. That when the sufferings and trials come, Lord, that we might understand what a blessing it is that you would show us that you are holding us fast. You are keeping us for that inheritance, that wonderful promise we look forward to. Father, I pray I pray so much that you would reveal genuine faith in your church and that it would cause us to shout and sing and rejoice. Help us to understand the hardships that we go through through the answers you provide in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Father and our God, our cares and our concerns are many. Our world is at a standstill. Our family lives are at a standstill. Many are fearful. Many have doubts. Many have needs. Many are out of work. Many need great help. Many, many, many are the struggles of this day. 
Many people struggle even today with the overwhelming pressures and hardships of life. We confess that our struggles are too great for us. We have not the power to eradicate our circumstances. But, O oh God, you who made the heavens and the earth, all power over all things, over all circumstances, rests perfectly in your holy, wise, and righteous counsel and providence. We come today on behalf of your people. Father, in your wisdom, you've taken some loved ones from us, even this very week. Father, we lift up Jen and Doug Wright and their family as they lost their mother this past week. We thank you for blessing Marie with over 100 years of life. Father, Bill and Ingrid Paradise lost their brother this week. Father, we, we don't know, we don't understand why you choose to call loved ones away when you do, but we ask you to preserve comfort and love the Paradise and the Rundale family, Lord, during this time. Scripture teaches us that death is the last enemy to be vanquished at the end of time. And until then, we will hope in Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. We pray for Jerry and Ross Farrow's mother. We ask your healing power in her, Lord, in her life as she's hospitalized. We ask you to give hope and strength to the family, Lord, even as they love and pray for their mother. Father, you see and know why this coronavirus is present in the world. Father, we ask your mercy in this situation. Father, we ask you to bring this pandemic to an end. Father, we also ask that you bring new life through Christ out of this dark situation. Father, today there are many who stand in rebellion against you, you the maker of all things. Father, today, today the greatest need is salvation, rescue from the wrath of God that we so deserve. Father, the church, church here in America, the church all over the world, the church needs to be saturated in the Bible. In order to know how to be the light of the world while in the world. Father, come, come to our aid. Make your priorities for the church in the world our priorities. Realign and readjust our sight and our hearts to see through your view of the world and all of reality. Our witness will be stronger and we worship and we walk with you. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' blessed, precious, holy name, we offer this petition. Amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, let's sing together, Blessed Be the Name.
Thank you all for joining us for worship this morning. We pray that God would continue to bless you and encourage you through his word. We invite you to join us again next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. And as we go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us now and always. Amen.